Brew Strong is brought to you by Blickman Engineering, home of the top-tier brewing stand. Visit them online at BlickmanEngineering.com. Time for the beer radio you've been looking for. This is the show that dispels myths, tackles the toughest topics, and makes no apologies for geeking out on beer. Hosted by two guys that drink before they think, Jamil Zainashev and John Palmer. This is Brew Strong. Hey, howdy, hey, my Bruin brothers and sisters. John and I are not in the studio this week. We're out on the yacht Brewstrong, sipping pina coladas on the poop deck. But don't fret, because we've pulled together some of our favorite topics from past shows for you to enjoy once again. It's sort of like eating too much, and then you partially vomit later, but since it didn't leave your mouth, it isn't really vomit, so you swallow it again, and it tastes okay. Except this will be a whole lot better, I promise you. In the first segment of this Best of Brew Strong, John and I cover fermentation temperature control. Controlling fermentation temperature is extremely important and it makes a world of difference in your beer. Uh, in this episode, we cover everything from fermentation temperatures to using uh, an air conditioner to con- control a, a larger space. And I really love the part about the thermometer device from uh, 1762. It's awesome stuff, and I hope you enjoy. You know, one of the most critical things as far as, uh, you know, making great beer is temperature control. That's one of the things I've always ranted about. You know, don't be buying conicals. Don't be buying, you know, stainless uh, steel sculptures and things like that until you have your temperature control. You should be getting yourself a fridge and a controller and all that. Of course, not everybody has that amount of money, and, and there are a lot of options and a lot Space. of different ways to do it, right? Mm-hmm. That's okay. right. Well, and, you know, Joe is really cool. One of the things he has is a book from 1762 that belonged to um, President John Adams. He actually has the book that John Adams owned. Really? Wow. And it's this brewing book. And uh, in it, it has this uh, this uh, paragraph on temperature control. And... Uh, you know, I don't like to read things on the air because it really kind of sucks. But uh, I, I just thought this was was amazing. It's like uh, in in the book it says, "I know very well good beers were sometimes, perhaps often, made before the thermometer was known." Okay, this is 1762, and yeah. still is by many who are entirely ignorant of it. But this, if not wholly the effect of chance, cannot be said to be very distant from it. They who carry on this process, unassisted by principles and the use of the thermometer, must admit they are frequently unsuccessful. Whereas, did they carefully and with knowledge apply this instrument, they certainly would not be disappointed. It is equally true, the brewing art, for a long space of time, has been governed by an ill-conveyed tradition alone. If lucky combinations have sometimes flattered the best practitioners, faulty drinks as often made them feel the want of certain and well-established rules. It is just as absurd for a brewer to refuse the use of the thermometer as it would be for an architect to reject the informations of his plummet and rule and to assert they were unserviceable because the first house and probably many others were built without their assistance. Back in 1762, this this dude here was he was on the internet doing his shows on the <laughs> Brewing Network. 
and saying, look, you know, you should be using a thermometer. You know, you you balloon heads out there, I know, you know, and and that's the thing. You get people go, well, you know, I make a great beer and I don't have any fermentation temperature control. You know, it all turns out perfect. I just let it go. Yeah, it's 100 degrees out. Yeah, it's, you know. But you get that variable results. You're getting beers that uh, don't attenuate fully. You're getting beers that have uh, you know a lot of diacetyl, acetaldehyde, uh, you know a lot of these characters that you really don't want. Uncontrolled, yeah. uh, you know, fusel alcohols, esters, things like that. So yeah, you know, you know Belgians. <laughs> and now you, in Belgian, and that's that's also the thing. A lot of times you go, well, you know, it's Belgian, doesn't matter, uh, do whatever. It's like, no, 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 no. Even Belgians, you know, temperature control, or even more so, they, temperature control, very yeah. important. And it you're going to make so much better beer with temperature control. That's why after like full word boil, I you know, so you get yourself a big enough pot, and you're still extract brewing, right? You don't go to all grain. What you do is you get yourself fermentation temperature control. And you know, figure out how to control the temperatures of your ales and lagers to make uh, you know the best beer possible. Right? That's that's the big thing. So, I think uh, you know, I think if you're not doing that, then you're really not serious about making good beer if you're not controlling your temperature. So, what about Joe's question, John? Uh, you know, he's saying, look, uh, you know, here in Boston, uh, certain times of year, uh, ambient temperature can swing like 50 degrees. Uh, yep. Over short periods of time, he's had uh, uh, hit, he's hit ninety on one day, and then frost uh, you know a couple of days later. So he's been brewing with the seasons, but it's still a little hit or miss. So uh, where can we go? You know, how does somebody start out on a budget? You know, what? Give me give me the basics, and we'll kind of go from there. What do you think? We'll go from there and we we'll kind of build on it, and and say what you would what your next step up would be. Okay, I guess the, the most basic would be an enclosed space, such as a closet. If you put if you put your fermenter in the closet, uh, it'll probably be more stable in the closet than it would be in the room at large. Away from the sunny side of the house. So if you've got a closet right. on the interior of your house, that one's going to be cooler. Or if you have a, a part of your house that's always shady. At my old house, I had a... Uh, a bathroom that was on a patio, and the patio was covered, and so it was always shaded. It even grew moss out there, so that bathroom was always nice and cool and steady. You know, something like that. If you get the sun shining on a wall, it really heats up the room. So, right. uh, you know, stay away from rooms like that. Yeah. If um, if if even in a you know even in an interior room, you still have uh, too much temperature swing. Um, a setting your fermenter into a large bucket full of water is a way to increase the thermal mass of the system and reduce the amount of temperature swing. So you could even put it in a bucket or a bathtub. Right. Fill up a bathtub with uh, water, and it doesn't even have to be cold water necessarily. Uh, You you start out with cold water, but it'll, like John's saying, the entire tub needs to now change. So it'll it'll buffer those swings in temperature. Now, if it's hot continuously... Obviously, the temperature is going to rise, but it'll take much longer. Right, and you can always add ice bottles to that bath, you know, to help to help keep that bath's temperature down. Uh, You know, and you're you don't have to get it ice cold. You're looking for something in the 60s, so um, a couple ice bottles will work very well to help keep that water cool and to help reduce, you know, help keep the maximum temperature that where it sees is is fermenting, uh, getting you know above say 75. Well, and 
maybe we should talk about you know the the critical aspect of fermentation temperature control is to prevent really wild swings. It would be better. Right. Okay, let's say you have a recipe that's saying ferment at 67 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay, instead of starting at 65, letting it go up to 68, and then back down to 65, and then up to 68, or, you know, or 70, you know, 65 right. to 70, 65 to 70, that type of thing. Because what's going to happen is the yeast are going to start fermenting like crazy. They're going to start out slow. It's going to get up to 70. They're going to start fermenting like crazy. They may go for a couple of days, and then you know it's going to drop down to 65 again, and the yeast are going to be on the tail end, and they're just going to drop out of, out of solution. They're going to... Uh, you know they're going to go to sleep, and uh, they're not going to clean up a lot of those uh, uh, remaining right. sugars, those uh, those uh, things like acetaldehyde, acetal, and you're going to end up with a nasty beer. So it would be better than you know ch- chasing uh, 65 or chasing 67 to just let it ferment at 70 and just keep it steady at 70. So right, a steady right. fermentation temperature or a very slowly rising fermentation temperature to the end right. is is much more ideal than one that goes up and down, up and down. Yeah. We talked about that in our lagering shows where you you know if anything you want to start cooler and let the beer rise gradually over the length of the fermentation. Um, it's you know if you're going to have warm fermentation, then a steady state warm warm fermentation at say 70 degrees is better than as is your saying, Jamil, than a fluctuating temperature from 65 to 70 and back down, because you're going to end up forming more precursors, more of the diacetyl, more of the acetaldehyde. And then the yeast, when it cools down, are going to stop uh, conditioning those and refining those uh, byproducts, and you're going to end up with a bad beer. Um, if you can, and and the other key point is, you know, don't let that beer start at 80, and then stick it in an ice bath and cool it down to mm-hmm. 60, mm-hmm. because they're going to produce tons of precursor at 80. And as that beer cools down in the bath to say 60 degrees. Over three days, when most of that fermentation is finished, you're going to have just tons of precursor left over, and all your yeast has gone to sleep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you want you want those yeast to get real active at the end and and suck up the the dregs of what they're kind of they're getting greedy, finding stuff to uh, make energy out of before they go dormant, and uh, you want them to be sucking up diacetyl and acetaldehyde and stuff like that. So uh, right. that's why that rising temperature rather than a falling temperature is is more important. So I've uh, got an interior room, and I've added a, a, a bucket of water, but, you know, it's getting hotter and hotter and hotter outside. I live in Sacramento or near Sacramento, and uh, it's 110. And for some reason, I haven't turned on the air conditioner. So it's 110 right. in my house. What do I do next? What's what's my next step? Well, you go back to your closed space uh, model, but now you're going to add some active cooling to it. Uh, get a room air conditioner and just cool down that room. A room air conditioner, one of the small ones from Home Depot, it'll run you 100 120 bucks. You can probably find them online for cheap, too. Um, I think I bought one a couple of years ago for $80. And, uh, you know, a 5,000 BTU, two or 18-inch kind of cube air conditioner can chill down a room to maintain 65, no problem. Mm-hmm. Or you can go to a box build yourself a box it could be a cardboard box and stick that uh room air conditioner on the cardboard box 
it'll work. It'll cool down that local area and help me. Well, and I, I but, see how okay, that would we work. For, but, we yeah, we forgot on, one key That sounds kind of pricey to me. I mean, let's okay. let's say I'm you know, I'm like Justin, where I'm begging for random, ramen and condoms. So, you know, what's what's <laughs> the uh, you know what, there's got to be a cheaper stage than that, right? How about like mm-hmm. a, you know the wet T-shirt and fan thing? I see that on the internet oh, all yeah. the time. I've never that done works it. Good dryer is yeah. Okay, so if if it's dry enough where the water will evaporate off the the t-shirt, you you drape a t-shirt over your carboy or a towel. Terry cloth towel really works well, better than a t-shirt. Yeah, uh, that's true. you know, wrap a, a terry cloth towel on there, put a uh, like a clothespin on it or a, you know, a safety pin to hold it around the the carboy. Let the ends of the towel sit in that bath of water and then blow a fan across it. And that fan. So almost everybody has a fan and a towel at their house, right? And right. that wind blows a, across the, the towel. It increases the, the evaporation rate of the water that's soaking up through the terry cloth towel. And um, it'll cool it down, uh, what do they say, like 5, 10 degrees? Yeah, but that works best in dry areas. If you're in a humid area, such as Virginia, it's not going to work very well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But... Uh, you know that is, but that is a good cheap way to to get some extra cooling out. Mm-hmm. And then the the step above that would be you know the little window AC unit. Now, yeah, I've been able to pick up fridges for twenty five bucks, and yeah. uh, you know you can get yourself the controller mm-hmm. and hook that up, and and that's been pretty good. Now why why not go that route? That that is a really good route to go. Get a get a spare fridge, and you can pick them up off Craigslist, like you say, or. You know, uh, eBay or you know various uh, uh, used fridges or whatever you can get those, you know, for for cheap and uh, get yourself a temperature controller, um, like a Johnson or a, a Ronco, and uh, put your pro you know put the probe inside the fridge, attach it, tape it to your carboy, and uh, that will help you maintain a very consistent temperature. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Well, and that, that's what I use. Uh, you know, I use a uh, fridge, and then uh, I love my Johnson. And, uh, yeah, you uh, tape it to your carboy all the time, don't I, you? I put my probe on my carboy. And uh, the, I guess the, the drawback to this is, uh, you know, it takes up a lot of room. So if you don't have, you know, you're not going to wheel the fridge into the, uh, you know, into the house and, and put it in the bedroom. and yeah. uh, you stick know, it in the garage. Well, if you're... If you're married, you're certainly not doing this. But uh, <laughs> uh, you know, if you're living with a, 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 a frat house, then I'm sure this is fine. But yeah, you, you need to put it in the garage or somewhere, and then um, you know, almost any fridge will work. Uh, the the question often is that I see is you know should I use a fridge or should I use a freezer? And I've always leaned towards the fridge because the temperatures that you want on a, uh, to do your fermentation at are more fridge temperature-like. Even when you're lagering, it's fridge temperature. You know, yeah. that's, the fridge temperature is you know just below 40. It's like 36 degrees. And they'll go down to 32, and they'll go up to 40 or 45 you know, or 50. Now, um, and so with, with lagers, you can almost even dial it in with the, the fridge controller. Uh, you know, so it's a cheap way to do lagers. If you're trying to do ales, you want a warmer, right? Now, a freezer right. isn't meant to carry away the condensation like a fridge is. A fridge is designed to pull all that condensation out, and, you know, there's frost-free and all that stuff. With a freezer, you tend to 
catch a lot of uh, moisture in those things. And people have a lot of uh, moisture problems. Yeah, mold. Mm -hmm. Easy to get mold in a freezer. So people end up using those buckets of uh, damp rid or whatever to to soak up the the moisture in there. I prefer just going with the fridge. Fridge is cheaper to start with usually, and then uh, you know you can you can put your stuff in there. Yeah. I, I hook up. And, a- it's, and lifting a lifting you know six gallons of wort over the edge of a chest freezer and down in is not easy for us middle aged guys or old guys like me. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard on your back. So a fridge, it's a lot easier to squat down and lift the carboy, you know, the, the mm-hmm. one one vertical foot to slide it in on the bottom shelf there in the fridge. Right, right. And, uh, you know, as far as controllers go, you know, they got the Johnson, they got the Ranco, they got the old Johnsons with the metal probe. And those uh, those are okay. You got to be real careful. You don't kink that little line that, that uh, you know, it's, a, it's an open uh, tube, that air pressure. Uh, and, and works off of air pressure, so you you don't want to kink that tube. Uh, the later ones, they're electronic and and they're a lot more durable. But uh, I like the some of the Johnsons, the ones that I have right now. I haven't been in the market for a controller for quite a while, but uh, the Johnsons will have a anti short cycle uh, setting. So uh, you know you have this fridge. And it's got a compressor. If you um, run the compressor for a while and then stop it and restart it and stop it and restart it, you can end up with some some issues on the uh, on the on the compressor shortening the life of the compressor. So what you want is this anti short short cycle. It it gives a twenty sec twenty minute delay. So if the the thing's just been running, it won't run again for 20 minutes, and that actually extends the life of your compressor. That's a nice thing. Now, on the Rancos, they'll have ones that are uh, two-stage. And uh, what I want to do is, uh, uh, you know, you hook up those two-stage, you can do, uh, you know, uh, heating and cooling all at the same time. So uh, that's very, very cool. Very good. All right. Well, let's take a break. Back up this. Your carboy cap on. This is Bruce Strong. We'll be right back. When you hear Blickman Engineering, think innovation, passion, quality, and customer service. Blickman Gear is designed by brewers to give you a sense of pride in your equipment. At Blickman, they know what makes brewing a pain and build gear that makes it fun. Like the intuitive beer gun, a completely different approach to filling bottles. The Therminator Wart Chiller, a new take on a plate chiller that's sized for flow, performance, and the high groundwater temps homebrewers face every day. The Brewmometer. A brilliant weldless thermometer design with brewing parameters right on the dial. The Auto Sparge, ultimate simplicity for preventing an overflow or running your mash tun dry. And much more, like the modular top tier brewing stand, conical fermenters, and their boiler maker brew pots. With more cutting edge equipment coming soon, keep up with the latest from Blickman at BlickmanEngineering.com and stay on the cutting edge. 
Whether I'm making me dry stout or rebuilding me kegs, I head to the heart of dear Dublin for me homebrewing supplies. You head all the way back to Emerald Isle just for a wee batch of grain or a bit of keg tubing? No, you moronic waste deliver Dublin, California. I go to HopTech. For 30 years, HopTech in Dublin, California has been supplying homebrewers with malt extract, fresh grains, hops, spices and sugars, hop oils and extracts, and much more. HopTech is one of the first homebrew supply shops on the internet and is proud to offer award-winning beer kits, both online and in their store. Mention the BN Army for a 10% discount off your order. The store is open every day except Wednesday or shop online at HopTech.com anytime. HopTech is run by passionate, award-winning brewers who live, love, and travel for beer and bring their experience to the store for you. If you don't want to visit Dublin, just call toll-free 800-DRY-HOPS or go to HopTech.com. Visit HopTech today in Dublin, California and at HopTech.com. Nico, listen, our lawyer said that we had to do this for one hour, and after this, we don't have to talk to each other for three more months until the next the meeting. Kids. Come on, let's get out of here. I'm supposed to have more lines. I'm the professional. <clears throat> hey, it's Sully. And I'm Nico. And we opened the 21st Amendment 10 years ago at 563 2nd Street in San Francisco, just two blocks from Giants Park, to make great beer and have a great time doing it. That's right, because to us, the 21st Amendment is more than just the right to make beer. It's the right to experiment, to be innovative, and just do things differently. And so now, we're putting our craft beer in cans. That's right, cans. You can find our world-famous Hell or High Watermelon Wheat Beer at Brew Free or Die IPA in the Northeast, Northwest, parts of the Midwest, and Alaska, in cans and on draft. So next time you're at your local neighborhood pub or good beer store, be sure to ask for 21st Amendment in cans. Because everyone likes it in the can. Tasty Crack Cans. Tasty Crack Cans. And now, Northern Brewer brings you another installment of The The Time Brewers! When last we left our heroes, they found themselves in 1842 in the province of Bohemia. Yo, this era jerky. All the beers is murky. What ho, friends? A male alewife. I don't know what I'm doing, so I got this dark malt, yeah? More stinky dark beer, yeah! No, sir! Please, wait! Just a moment! Hi! A package from the future? From Northern Brewer. Use the Pilsner malt, my good man! And these sots hop, sucker! They ain't noble like Queen Victoria! But you can use Sterling from Portland to Astoria! Let your work caramelize and let melanodins harmonize in a long boil. Keep your starter undercover with aluminum foil. Boo. And use it thou some bog myrtle. Northern Brewer is your one-stop homebrew supplier throughout the entire Fermento chronosphere. The widest selection of quality malt, hops, yeast, $7.99 flat rate shipping, and get your nasty ass bog myrtle back to the dark ages, brother Abelard. Hey, this golden lager with the happy hops pretty damn good. Thanks, Time Brewers. Thanks, Northern Brewer. Our work here is done, my friends. Now, to wherever we are next, we dead. Tune in next time for the continuing adventures of the Time Brewers. Ewa, what's your feel like? Take awesome and multiply it by two. Yeah! <laughs> Spraying live beer radio all over your face. <laughs> Can't get any better than this, baby. <laughs> it's the Brewing Network. Back to your hosts, Jamil Zaynashef and John Palmer. 
putting the testicles in technical. This is Brew Strong. This next segment covers another really popular topic, repitching yeast. Lots of people ask how to reuse yeast, not because they're cheapskates, but because repitching yeast can result in a really fantastic fermentation character. Uh, you know, whether you're trying to get a really clean uh, beer or, you know, a particular ester profile or, you know, you just want to make sure you get uh, proper attenuation of your beer. Uh, in this episode, uh, John and I cover everything from how to collect, how to rinse, how to determine exactly how much yeast to pitch. It's really chock full of great information. I hope you enjoy. So repitching yeast, uh, when you when you ferment a batch, uh, and you're, you rack that beer out into your bottling bucket or into your keg or, or what have you, you may notice at the bottom there's a lot more yeast than what you started with. You added a certain amount of yeast, maybe you added a, a vial of White Labs or a pack of uh, uh, Y yeast or maybe even dry yeast. The volume of yeast at the bottom of the, at the, the carboy or bucket or conical is much more than what you started with. Well, you could take that yeast and you can reuse it. Uh, there's some kind of specialized rules about reusing that yeast and how you go about reusing it, and that's what we're going to talk about. And uh, uh, but you can you can actually make another batch of beer from that yeast, and it may even turn out better than the, the first batch. Why would you do that? I mean, I can go down to my local homebrew shop, pick up a fresh vial of yeast. Pitch that right in. We've already had a show on starters. Uh, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. could do that. Why would you repitch your yeast? That's an excellent question. Again, I'm baffled. Why is any homebrewer going to go to the trouble to do that? Mm-hmm. When you can just go and buy more yeast. Yeah. Well, a, a, a couple things. Uh, you know, the most obvious that I think people will key on is, well, it's going to be much cheaper for me. I don't have to go buy yeast a second time. I can just reuse that yeast, right? Well, and you may not need to make a starter either. There's that convenience right. factor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the the other thing, though, and you ask any professional brewer, they'll tell you that first pitch off a off a new uh, package of yeast, it, it it'll do well, and you'll get good fermentation. But you know, the second pitch off that yeast is even better, and then the third pitch really the yeast kind of seemed to hit their stride. You're, you know, you're selecting for yeast that do well in that beer or whatever it is, but that's where the yeast are really humming along and the beer really seems great. So it sounds like if you're not repitching your yeast, you could be at a disadvantage then potentially. Right. I, I think the the best beers actually are made from repitched yeast. Well, there you go. One other thing. Yeah. So and, and you know that that comes with a lot of caveats. You know, as far mm-hmm. as you know, health and sanitation and things like that. So uh, the fellow who wrote in the email there, he obviously had this big slurry, and mm-hmm. I know a lot of people are just saying, "Hey, uh, just take that and dump it right into the next batch, right?" Yeah, a lot of people say that 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 that's what they do. They just dump new wort on the yeast cake, and oh, you know, there you go. It works perfectly. Well, I, I'm not uh, so sure that's a, that's true. Right it, now. Uh, you're done with fermentation, so here we are. I'm done. Uh, you know, I've finished my primary fermentation. Maybe I've done a secondary fermentation. Am I going to be using the yeast off of the primary or the secondary? What do you think? Well, go ahead, John. G- yeah, generally off the primary. Uh, if you're harvesting from the secondary, 
um, generally that's a the, the, you've tended to select in the secondary for less flocculent, flocculently yeast, or you've pitched um, in the secondary with, with added fruit juice or uh, puree or something. So it isn't exactly your your prime strain at that point. Right. Um, well, one one problem you can have is if you start selecting for the the less flocculent yeast, uh, you end up with uh, it becomes powdery. It'll stay in suspension. It won't clear. And that yeah. happens very quickly with, uh, especially lager strains, uh, and that is a, the type of beer that people tend to want to do secondaries, and then they want to co- collect this yeast, this clean yeast off the bottom, and use that, and it gets real powdery, real quick, and won't flocculate, and it also changes attenuation. Those those less flocculent yeast tend to be more attenuative; they tend to uh, finish out sugars more. So uh, you really want uh, kind of you don't want the the first yeast that drops, and you don't want the last yeast that drops. You want that that section middle of the road. Yeah, that's why with the conical fermenters, uh, brewers will often drop that first section of yeast, and then they'll use the, the chunk in the middle, and then they'll discard the the last portion. Okay, so for the the rest of the world that doesn't have conicals, right. and it sounds like you're you're taking it most likely from your primary. I don't you don't even do a secondary fermentation. Right, right. I'm, this primary secondary thing drives me nuts. I, you know, you, yeah. you you put it in the fermenter, you ferment, and then when it all completely drops clear, the beer's done, and then you can you can select your yeast from that. The uh, you know, for people using buckets or carboys, uh, the the best way to do this is uh, get yourself uh, I prefer a sterile container. So, what I use is uh, these uh, Nalgene type, they're uh, polypropylene or polyethylene, I'm not sure. Uh, you put them in, uh, you get them in liter, two liter, uh, half liter sizes. I put them in a, a pressure cooker, with a couple drops of water in them, and sterilize them, 250 degrees, uh, you know, 22 minutes, 23 minutes. So I know they're sterile. Uh, when I rack my beer out of my carboy or bucket or whatever it might be, I'll swirl off the swirl the the carboy around to break up the yeast cake on the bottom. I leave like a you know a half inch of beer in there, swirl it real good, break everything up, and then I will uh, you know flame the opening on the carboy, and then uh, I pour that into the sterile container, and then uh, I put it in the fridge and. That's that's all I do with it. You put it in the fridge. So so okay. You now you have a huge amount of yeast. I mean that's right. you know you look at the bottom of that carboy. It's pretty thick, mm-hmm. even in a five gallon batch. Right. How long is this going to be good for? Well, ideally, you want to use the yeast as soon as you possibly can. The the sooner you use it, the better off it's going to be. What happens to the yeast when they go in that stationary phase? They start consuming their reserves. Their, uh, you know, their energy reserves are being consumed, keeping themselves alive and steady, and all that. Yeah, um, their carbohydrate reserves, glycogen and trellose, mm-hmm. and uh, that's going to uh, eventually be depleted. The yeast will start consuming themselves, and uh, you know, you end up with just a kind of a rotting mess that smells like meat and and uh, you know, it's it, it gets pretty nasty. And the BN Studio, right? Right. right. <laughs> Like, like like a BN crotch, <laughs> right? And uh, uh, so you know, ideally, you want to use that. Now, different strains of yeast are going to store better than others. Um, you know, as far as something like Cal Ale uh, or you know, oh, oh uh, ten fifty six, it will um, 
uh, store pretty stable for for a, a couple of weeks without a lot of uh, loss of viability. You get something like a, the wheat yeasts uh, tend to go south really fast, is what I've discovered. And I've heard uh, both uh, uh, Chris White from White Labs and Dave Logston from Yeast say that the lager yeasts uh, don't store very well and that they, they go south really fast. But I've found that they are as good as the, the you know the Cal Ale and the others, but I don't know if that's you know the way that I'm handling them or what. But uh, they they both seem very certain, and I I trust those guys as far as uh, you know what they're saying about that. So you swirled it off. You now put it in your Nalgene or plastic container. Now, what if you don't have a Nalgene bottle? Is there any other container? I mean, can I use my you know one liter water Crystal Geyser water bottle? Well, put you a can. funnel or something. Uh, you can use. I any, use glass any, jars. Well, and the, and the thing about glass is fine. You, you you don't want to seal those off to where they're going to pressurize and shatter the glass because right. there can still be a generation of gas. Gas, so uh, uh, you know, don't put a, a, a hard top on on the glass jar. Uh, you know, either leave it loose or you know, cover it with uh, foil or cling film and a rubber band, and right. uh, you know that'll be a, a good as well. The nice thing about um, uh, you know the plastics that I use and uh, glass is generally you can uh, sanitize those with heat. Uh, yeah, I put I use mayonnaise jars, put uh, half an inch of water in the bottom, and just loosely rest the cap on top and stick it in the microwave for you know a couple minutes. Let the water boil in there. You know, heat sanitize the inside. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's that's a nice way to do it. Um, you know, some of the other plastics like the the water bottles and stuff they're right. they're they're not uh, stable under heat, so they'll okay. they'll melt on you. Yeah. So uh, it's nice if you can heat sanitize something because uh, it tends to be very effective and very uh, very cheap. And it sounds like if you're going to be using this yeast more than once. You introduce a little bacteria, something that's not sanitary, and you could screw up the rest of your beer. Right. Well, and uh, keep in mind this, and this is one of the things about repitching yeast. You know, when it, every time you brew, the, the the thing's not sterile, right? There's there's you know your sanitization of the uh, you know the carboy or bucket or whatever you're using. There's any lines you're using to transfer. There's exposure to the air. I mean, there's the air is just filled with dust even though you don't really see it it's filled with dust and on those dust you know it's you know you have some degree of of contamination every time every every time you brew so just starting off you got some contamination in there every time you repitch this yeast now when you when you go and you start and you pitch this yeast into your next brew you're pitching some bacteria or wild yeast perhaps in with the the good yeast. the The nice thing is you're pitching enough yeast that it should readily outcompete it. But again, you will have some increase. You you got another set of transfers. All this you you end up building up your your contamination load, and it can be um, a problem. You need to be very careful if you're going to be doing this. Now, what type of environment? I I've, I've had a chance to brew with Jamil before, and he, it's like you know if his grass is wet. It's not zen enough, you know, or something. The 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 environment is important. So, right. is there an environment to take this out of the the carboy? I mean, you're doing it outside. Are you doing it in the garage because you're transferring right. the yeast. This is when the contaminants can get in. Good point. Uh, avoid wind. Wind, and uh, you know, if you can, uh, an open flame that will lift. Uh, you work next to an open flame. It'll lift. Uh, 
all the stuff away and, and kind of give you a clear airspace around where you're working. And wind is probably the worst thing for brewing. I can brew in the rain. I can't brew in the wind. The wind wind drives me nuts because it you know, brings a lot of... Uh, you know, material from uh, plants and stuff, uh, you know, they travel on the wind, and, uh, you know, that's how it gets into your beer and, and ruins things. So you brew outdoors then? I do. <laughs> Trying to get him to brew indoors, but he just won't do it. No. <laughs> so, so okay, so now I've got this, you know, giant slurry of yeast mm-hmm. in a container. It's time to reuse it. Mm-hmm. We already know that uh, it's going to last you know, maybe I brew the next week. The first question right. is, how soon do I have to brew before I, you know, can't use this anymore? It's dying in the bottle. Well, generally, you know, within within the first week, you're okay. So if you if you harvest your yeast on, uh, you know, a Saturday or a Sunday, and then, um, you know, you decide you're going to brew the next Saturday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, that's fine. You don't even need to, uh, you know, add a starter or anything like that. You're, you're just going to harvest the appropriate amount of yeast, pitch that in, and you're off off to the races. Of course, that's if what you're doing with your yeast in the first place is uh, you know healthy. Yeah. You know, the yeast that you select, you want to have you know healthy uh, yeast has been properly you know treated. You don't want to you know get some. Uh, uh, package of yeast that expired two years ago, and you're throwing it in this barley wine, and uh, you know it seems like it's sort of fermented, and then you're taking the yeast off of that, and it's you know it, it stinks because uh, I don't know, smells like you know a wet dog for some reason. You don't yeah. really know why, and then you're going to select this yeast, and you're going to throw it into another batch of wort. Big mistake. If the yeah, beer select, selection of the yeast is a key point. You want to select the right yeast to repitch. Mm-hmm. Well, your and primary. It, and, and, and it, how do you do that? Well, I mean, I don't have a microscope. Well, then, and if if the if the beer you're you're harvesting from doesn't taste great, doesn't uh, you know? I mean, there may be recipe flaws, but if the, if the fermentation wasn't perfect and wonderful, don't reuse the yeast. Yeah, if it doesn't taste clean. Yeah, don't take yeah, a chance. Yeah, okay. that, that's sense. a big mistake. And of course, and you, don't and don't repitch your trub. From the right. previous batch. Oh, well, yeah, easier said than done. So, I, I mean, you know, if you don't have a conical, you're taking uh, the yeast and it, your trub and your hot matter. Let's say you previously brewed a pale ale. You got hops. You got hot break. You got cold break. You got right, right. everything. How do you well, separate that from the yeast? Excellent question. And I know you know the answer to this, but good job setting me up with with, with the softball here. <laughs> well, actually, I really want to know this. I've, I've been having some issues with this myself. Well, and and it, it it's uh, it's actually pretty easy. It's just, uh, you know, people have questions as to, you know, what does it look like? You know, I think we need to do a, our first video for uh, for people. And there's probably some videos out there on the Internet or some, some pages on it with photos on it. But essentially, you've got your container of yeast, right? And uh, what I like to do is uh, use a big enough container that uh, the yeast portion is maybe, once it settles out, is maybe, you know, a quarter or less of the container. You know, a third is kind of pushing it, but a quarter or less. So if i got a two-liter container, I've got maybe 500 mils of yeast solids at the bottom. The, the beer liquid may be, you know, higher at that point. What I do is... Um, First off, I'll, I'll uh, uh, decant the the beer off of the off the yeast, and then I'll put sterile water in, uh-huh. and I'll take a, a volume of sterile water, usually about four times as much water as yeast, 
or three times, three to four times, depends on how much room, of course, you got in this container. You pour that in, shake it up, shake it real good until all the clumps, any, if you're using, especially if you're using a flocculent yeast like a, you know, an English ale yeast will tend to be real clumpy. Oh, yeah. You know, break that up real good and then just set it down on the counter. And what you'll find is if if you've used enough water to thin it out enough, what you'll find is within 10 minutes, You'll see little black bits, the the brown huff, and all that stuff will settle to the bottom. You know, bits of hops, uh, break material, and dead yeast cells are going to drop to the bottom of the container fairly quickly. Uh, you know, first ten minutes, and what you'll see is you'll have this little layer of dark crud on the bottom, and then you'll have this milky kind of white-looking stuff in suspension in the water above. That's the yeast that you're going to use. Okay. Okay, it's 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 in that portion. I think I, I understand where you're going with this, but the difficult thing is how is any normal home brewer, or professional brewer for that matter, calculate the amount to repitch back in uh, uh, to his 5 or 10 or whatever gallon batch? Well, and that's tricky. I mean, the, 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 way, the only real way you can do it is... Um, uh, by measuring the amount of cells you have. And that is, uh, you know, with a microscope and hemocytometer, or um, you can do it uh, with a mass spec sometimes. That that will work. Um, but, you know, most people don't have either of those available hey, to them. Do you them. like the jelly beans in the mason jar? Just right. kind of guess how many. <laughs> exactly. Well, and that's, that's part of it. Okay. So uh, a lot of people have, have seen a White Labs vial, right? Right. Okay. The amount of yeast in the White Labs vial is about 100, 120 billion cells. It fills about 25 milliliters, 27 milliliters of a 35 milliliter vessel. That the whole tube is 35 milliliters, and that it'll it'll fill about uh, you know that much of the vessel. If you go on, uh, and, and I make no money off of this, so you know, <laughs> I only mention it to help people out. Uh, www.mrmalty.com. There's a yeast pitching calculator there, and the yeast pitching calculator will work with um, repitching yeast. And so the only reason I mention the, the White Labs files is that is pretty much pure yeast, very low um, non-yeast percentage, and um, it's tightly packed in that that vial. I mean, it, it's it's real tight in there. If you go to the yeast pitching calculator and, and you the there's defaults there for non yeast percentage and uh, thickness of yeast. Right. If you move those to the extremes with the, the least amount of um, of uh, non yeast and the tightest pack, you'll find that the volume of yeast equals what's in that White Labs. Right. Solid right. portion there, chunky. So, so the 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 two exactly match. If you, uh, but if you just use the defaults, that tends to be what most people get when they think they got real thick yeast. Okay, so you've harvested your yeast out of the carboy, you've got it in your container, you put it in the fridge, and you wait. Uh, you know the week. At the end of the week, the yeast at the bottom there. It's got probably the defaults of non-yeast and thickness. So right. don't 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 mess with the defaults. They're pretty close. Okay. 
Now, yeast cells change size based on their condition and the environment and everything that's that's happened to them. So they can be bigger or smaller depending on a lot of different factors. And, uh, you know, strains will even have a, an effect, you know, different strains. So it's an approximation, but it's, it's pretty darn close. Now, what you'll, you'll put in the beer that you uh, want to brew, and you put in your harvest date, and it'll tell you how much uh, yeast you need, to, you need to have. And let's say in this case, it'll be like 100 mils, right? Right. Like that container next to you, Nick, that you brought in, yeah. that's, that's two liters, Some right? Nasty-looking stuff, yeah. Right, so... Uh, you know, half of that is a liter, and one-tenth of that would be 100 mils. You know, depending on the, ca- the container you have, that's one other thing. The taller and narrower the container is when you add water and shake it up, the easier you're going to see the stratification of the bad stuff and the good stuff. Okay. Um, but uh, so what I like to do is look at the container and see how much yeast solids I have in there. So in our previous example, we are saying we had 500 mils of solids, right? Right. And we were going to add water to right, it. Right, right. So 500 mils, I know I need one-fifth of that amount. I decant all the beer off, okay? And I've got the 500 mils of solids. It's all slopped around on the sides now. Right. I have my water, and I shake it up, and I let it set, start to settle. I need one-fifth of whatever volume that is, I need one-fifth of it. Okay, after right. 10 minutes. You don't want to let it really settle out, but while it's still in solution like that, one-fifth. Okay. So if I've added uh, um, you know, uh, a liter of water to my 500 mils of yeast, and I've got 1,500 mils of liquid slurry... You still need one-fifth of that? I need one-fifth of that, 300 mils. There you go. Okay, so that tells you how much how much to pitch. And you could just take that 300 mils, pour it into your beer, and you're, you're good to go. See, you can let that yeast settle back out, or you can, you know, trans- what I like to do with the re- remainder is transfer it to another sterile container, leave that, that uh, the dead cells and all the crud off the bottom, leave that, you know, th- toss that away and go with, with clean cells in the, in the other. That's why I like container. using a graduated cylinder or something. Uh-huh, uh-huh. For my slurry, because you get an idea how much is in there, right. and then you know, okay, if I swirl it up, I, I had you mm-hmm. know two hundred fifty mils or five hundred a thick yeast slurry. Right. You can do the math from well, there. Well, and you could take a graduated cylinder, yeah. and uh, you know mayonnaise jar like like John's using, and uh, you know just you know mark the jar, uh, you know fifty hundred mils, one fifty two hundred, and that that should give you a pretty good uh, idea of what what you're doing now. Uh, you know, uh, Mr. Dorman was asking about, you know, just oh, why wouldn't you just toss, you know, everything into the into the next next beer? It's easy. Well, the problem is, if you pitch too much yeast or too little yeast, um, you know, right off of that, you're you're gonna you're gonna affect the flavor. Yeast need to to grow to develop the flavors that are in beer. The the cleanest of beers have esters in them. A lager does not is not lacking in esters. It's just you know a different set, you know more restrained, but it's there. If you got rid of that stuff, it would it would taste horrible. So you need the yeast to grow and develop those flavors in your beer. So that's why one of the most important reasons for pitching the right amount. You don't want to over pitch because you're gonna you're gonna impact those flavors. You can actually. Uh, you know, decrease attenuation. And a lot of people say, "Well, you know, it's not attenuating enough. I'll just add more yeast. I'll add more yeast. I'll add more yeast. You know, I'll, I'll go with a really big pitch." 
you get to a certain point where it actually has a negative impact on attenuation. The yeast will not attenuate as much if you if you mm-hmm. get too much yeast in there. The other factor is um, that yeast cake uh, after fermentation. If you just toss another beer on there, a lot of those cells are already dying. Mm. Uh, you know, there is material in there that's dead and dying. And do you really want to add that to your beer? Do you want to add dead yeast to your beer? Not necessarily. You don't the want best choice. Cascade hops in your right. You know, residue in your Munich Hellas. You exactly. Know? Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, and that brings up another point, which is, um, you know, your sequence of of repitching. Do you go? You know, you generally want to go from a, a, a lower gravity beer to a higher gravity beer, a lower alcohol beer to a higher alcohol beer. You really, you generally want to go from lower IBUs to higher IBUs, or you know, from uh, paler to darker. Uh, how many times can you do it before it becomes maybe toxic? You picked up bacteria, something. Well, that's going to depend on your process, how well you're treating the yeast, uh, things like that. You know, how much contamination you've picked sing, up. Sing to on. them, right? Exactly. <laughs> Stroke them, rub them. All right. Um, you know, yeah. Quality uh, in equals quality out. And you know the the thing that um, uh, for me. You know, the first pitch is good. The second pitch is better. The third pitch is magical. Fourth and fifth are kind of along those lines. You know, by the sixth, um, I don't know. It, it just depends on, you know, how clean your process is. Uh, you know, there are breweries that go many, many generations. I tend to cut it off around, you know, the fourth or the fifth or maybe the sixth uh, pitch. And usually by that time, I've run out of beer styles that I want to brew. Right. Now, if you're brewing the same beer every week, uh, you know you can easily go quite a bit longer. But you know, creativity's sake, for most home brewers, um, you know you kind of give up after you've done five batches on the same type of yeast. And one of the th- things to keep in, in in mind is, you know, as these yeast pitches grow, you know, from one pitch to the next, you've got you know several times the amount of yeast you need and you could use that for uh, you know uh, multiple uh, types of beer and you know you can make uh, from one I usually split it into two and then you know you could be making four batches off that third pitch right. or more okay well seems to answer a lot of questions there uh, got a bunch more for you <laughs> okay well let's do this let's take a break and when we come back we'll get in some more questions about repitching yeast sure This is Bruce Strong. We'll be right back. Since 1921, Mundins has been a provider of quality malted grain and extracts. What did he just say? That's 90 years of locally sourced grain for home brewers and professional brewers alike. All farm within 50 miles of our malt houses. What? I can't understand what this guy said. Last part. Whole and crushed malts, including wheat and peated malt, liquid extract, hopped and unhopped, as well as dry malt extract. Everything from beginner home brewer kits to all the ingredients an infant home brewer needs. Something about trains? What? Language is this guy speaking? He's from Austria. Mundins is proudly serving brewers in 54 countries and honored to be a leader in mowing. Can you understand this guy? No. 
That's a really free language. Ah! Ah! It's from Munton's Malt and Malt Extract that you like for a brew shop! Munton's. For brewing, distilling, and baking. Quality malted grain and extract for 90 years. Make your malt Munton's. When I order a beer, I want my server to know more about it than I do. I want someone who enjoys good beer and loves helping others enjoy it too. I want someone who knows how to pour a perfect pint for every beer style. I want a Cicerone. The Cicerone Certification Program is creating the type of people who help you enjoy great beer. Home brewers and craft beer lovers know beer is more flavorful and complex than ever, and it takes some serious knowledge to store and serve beer right. Cicerone's no beer. There are three levels in the Cicerone Program. Certified Beer Server, Certified Cicerone, and Master Cicerone. Cicerone's are truly the sommeliers of beer. The best beer locations have a certified Cicerone on staff. Relaxed and unpretentious, Cicerone's are tested on storing and serving beer, beer styles, flavor and tasting, the brewing process and ingredients, and pairing food with beer. Learn more about your next beer guide at Cicerone.org. Certified Cicerone, because it takes top talent to present a perfect pint. Hi, this is Push from the Brewing Network, and I want to tell you about the Brewmaster's Warehouse and how you can get 10% off your next order. I'm a pretty techie guy, but I've never seen an online store like this. It's awesome. Go to brewmasterswarehouse.com and click on Brew Builder. You can whip up a custom recipe so easily even Sven could do it. Seriously, it's slick. You can share your recipe with your own logo and notes to the Brewmasters database if you want. And the best part, it keeps a running tally of the beer you're building while you're doing it. Then, bam, click Buy Recipe and your cart is filled and ready to go with helpful suggestions in case you forgot something. This thing is amazing. Brewmasters Warehouse is run the way a home brewer would do it with great service, fast turnaround, and $6.99 flat rate shipping. Brewmasters Warehouse and the Brew Builder blew me away. Check it out today at brewmasterswarehouse.com. I'm serious. And don't forget to put BN Army in the discount code box for 10% off your order. Check out brewmasterswarehouse.com. Cheers. Do you support the Brewing Network? Do you brew your own? Are you looking for any economical, fun, and legal way to do both? Subscribe to Brew Your Own magazine and do just that. All year long, Brew Your Own will surprise you, entertain you, and educate you with articles on beer and brewing from authors like the Brewing Network's very own Jamel Zedeshaf and John Palmer. Each issue is a full pint of brewing techniques, homebrew stories, tips and photos, projects to make yourself, and recipes for the avid home brewer. Get your tough questions answered by Mr. Wizard. And polish your style accuracy with DeVille. A portion of every subscription goes to the Brewing Network, so subscribe today at byo.com slash brewingnetwork or just click the BYO logo on the Brewing Network homepage and support a fantastic hobby and your favorite broadcaster. Brew your own. The how-to homebrew beer magazine. You're listening to the Brewing Network. Back to the beer guys that make other beer guys look like wine guys. Brew strong. The boil seems like such a simple thing, but you know when you get a geek like John Palmer involved, there's a lot more to it than just firing up the burner. Yes, I'm sure you're thinking, I already know how to boil work, but bear with us, and I think you might learn something you never knew about the boil from this following segment. That's a good question. I I like that question because, you know, we all uh, 
myself included, we're like, all right, well, we boil it, and then, uh, you know, oh, it's sanitizing it and concentrating it. Yeah. Okay. Oh, and, yeah, maybe the hops. And, uh, uh, yeah, and then we cool it down, we put it in. Okay, boil done. You know, <laughs> it's a much more complex topic than that, isn't it? Yeah, the I mean, you have your grain bill that defines your you know your your flavors of the pro you know the of the beer you're making, but to a large extent, those flavor a lot of those flavors in the beer are created in the boil mm-hmm. from the ingredients. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it can't get we can get quite complex in it. Okay, well, uh, and um, before we go much further into the boil itself. You know, a simmer is where, uh, just like little bubbles are, are rising to the surface. Yeah, the oh. surface looks really kind of flat, just mm-hmm. slightly agitated from the little bubbles popping up, but mm-hmm. flat. Rolling <clears throat> boil is when, or, and a boil is where, I guess you're getting, you know, more surface action, larger bubbles or a greater volume of bubbles. Mm-hmm. And then a rolling boil is where the you see actually, you know, like little lumps in the surface. Round yeah. lumps in the surface where you can see the the word turning over, and uh, that's what you mean by a rolling boil. And then a violent boil would be, you know, where stuff's leaping out and hitting you in the face. Uh, you <laughs> right. can hear it flying all over the place, and uh, you know you can't control your uh, your yeah. firing of wort all over the place. Yeah, you're, if you if your boil is that heavy, you're probably going to get some scorching. Yeah, and it, it just doesn't do a whole lot of good. Well, and let's um, – we've got on the phone with us uh, Jeremy Robb from uh, uh, Eagle Rock Brewery. Jeremy, you there? Yeah, hey, guys. Hey, hey thanks guys. for joining us. Yeah, hey, Jeremy. no problem. So uh, real quickly, uh, give us a, a, a real quick breakdown of uh, your background and uh, Eagle Rock Brewery. Well, started out like – like most uh, small brewers out there, as a home brewer, uh-huh. uh, my dad and I uh, have been brewing pretty seriously together for about, like, I guess, seven years now. Um, and I guess, like every home brewer, you just, you know, you, you get more into it. You start geeking out, getting the cooler equipment, and start doing all the the research and, and background and understanding the process and. Uh, we got kicked out of the kitchen into the garage, <laughs> and then mm-hmm. eventually out of the garage into uh, the place we have now. So, so you've essentially turned a really good hobby into uh, work. Into work. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. It's funny because I uh, I always joke that you know I used to be in the film industry and uh, I was always kind of complaining about the work life balance and and not having much of a of a life outside of work, but. So now, you know, I, I have absolutely even no, worse <laughs> no life outside of work. <laughs> so. uh, but you make some really good beer, though. Oh, well, thank you. All right. So, uh, Jeremy, um, what what are you, what are brewers looking for out of the boil? I mean, what you know, what's what's the what's the whole purpose of boiling the wort? Well, um, as as most people know, that the, the um, really main purposes are sterilizing the wort, mm-hmm. killing off um, any of the, especially lactobacillus, which is on the grain um, after milling, and it survives through mashing. Um, so to kill off that, any other uh, bacteria that might be present, um, concentrating the wort, evaporating uh, excess water, so concentrating your sugars and, um, and creating 
uh, flavor and color, getting that melanoidin production, getting some color development into your wort, um, and getting also increasing your gravity. Um, and then uh, really one of the, the biggest things besides those is, is uh, isomerizing your hops and, and um, uh, solubilizing the, the hop components after they're isomerized and getting the and bitterness then, in yeah yeah exactly yep mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah um so that was one of the big differences um you know from from home brewing and, and using uh, starting out on the kitchen stove and really having a, a, a anemic boil <laughs> um not having the power to to get a good rolling boil mm-hmm. and then going into our garage and having um, the, the the turkey burners, those Cajun cookers that that a lot of homebrewers have, um, and and that's basically a direct fire method where the the flames are hitting the bottom of the kettle and, and heating it up. But then the biggest difference for us in the boil going to the the commercial sized system, a fifteen barrel system, is uh, our kettle is steam fired, and so. You know, there's there's some differences there as far as um, you know with it, with a direct flame, you're getting a lot more caramelization, a lot um, more intensity, huh? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that that was that was a big difference um, for us in, in moving up to a bigger size system. And how how did you? I mean, did you see or taste differences in the beer? You know, from the homebrew scale to the commercial scale at first. Yeah, we did. Um, we we sort of anticipated we were we were going to run into some unexpected uh, results just from moving to the bigger system, and so we did a, a half batch for our first very first batch. And what we noticed was we got um, a lot more bitterness than than we even anticipated. You know, using brewing software and, and calculations to figure out. Um, the, the hopping rate for the bigger system, but even then, it was more bitter than than we had anticipated. Um, oh. Yeah, so it, I guess part of that is probably the surface to volume ratio um, being being uh, less. Much and better, then, yeah. Yeah. And, right, right. And then also the um, <clears throat> the just the kind of more intense heat, the more intense um, uh, solubilization of the hops components. So. Um, but yeah, that was that was a big difference, and it took a little bit of adjustment. But we we figured it out pretty quick, and and uh, we're able to use that half batch and blend it um, with a with another. You know, we did a a less bitter batch based on what we had learned, and then blended the two to get our, our target beer. So, how deep is your boil when you're when you're doing a, a full batch? Do you mean like a depth as far as uh, from the surface to the bottom of the kettle right um, it's it, it ranges from if we really get a good efficient mash um, and and we have a, a full kettle um, it's about I guess about between four and five feet deep <laughs> okay yeah. um, or if, if we don't get such an efficient mash and, and uh, our, our gravity isn't uh, as high as we, we need it, then um, we'll get a little bit low, you know, three to four feet, I'd say. I see. So, okay. Ranging anywhere from that. Mm-hmm. And when, yes. 
What length boil are you doing there? One of the parts of the question that uh, Scott had was, um, you know, some breweries, they're doing 90 minutes. Some breweries are doing 60 minutes. Some breweries, you know, what 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 length boil are you using and, and why? Mostly we're using a 60-minute boil. Um, and the reason there is just uh, because uh, we don't want to, unnecessarily use more energy than, than we have to mm-hmm. um, to, to keep the boil going. Mm-hmm. Um, the, um, there are a couple beers that we do a longer boil with. Uh, we do a 90-minute boil. We just did our, our um, first specialty beer, which is uh, an Imperial Amber Wit beer. And um, it's basically, it's, it's like a bigger version of a wit beer but with a lot of munich malt as the base malt instead mm-hmm. instead of pilsner malt so mm. but the the objective there was to do a longer boil to kind of get more kettle caramelization and increase that that malt ca- uh character so mm-hmm. um, okay yeah you get a lot more melanoid development yeah mm-hmm. yeah yeah exactly now, John, you've been fond of saying, "Well, okay, you you don't technically get caramelization in in the in the kettle; you get melanoidins." And I always say, "Well, they taste like caramel uh, type yeah. of compounds." <laughs> That's true. They, they they are the compounds are very similar, uh-huh. um, but you need you know temperatures in excess of two twenty to get uh, caramelization as opposed to melanoidin formation, mm-hmm. um, and you need a much uh, I mean. Technically, you need um, oxygen like a, as well, don't you? Right. Uh, not so much oxygen, but you need a, need a very high concentration of sugar, mm-hmm. um, almost like r- really boiling malt extract would mm-hmm. give you that level of that ratio of moisture to sugar right. uh, necessary for true caramelization. Mm-hmm. But oh, um, what the melanoid function? Sorry, um, I, I have a actually a related question though. Because what about um, uh, with some some of the homebrews we had done in the past, we would put a little bit of wort into the bottom of the kettle mm-hmm. and really boil that hard until it started to to caramelize, or yeah. maybe not caramelize. Yeah, I think you're saying. probably getting it there because right. you've got you've got a, a very high heat, you know, for mm-hmm. a small volume of liquid, and you can and certainly at the fr- at the edges of that, you can achieve you know these two twenty uh, type temperatures. Uh, over the 212, you know, the boil. Well, especially if you get it down to a syrup. I know if you take the first runnings, I, in like yeah. a wee heavy, you take the first runnings and you boil that down. When it gets to a syrup, um, the thing about the, uh, I believe the thicker a uh, a liquid is, the the higher the viscosity, the more heat it takes to to yeah to the boil. boiling point goes up. Yeah, so your mm-hmm. boiling point rises, so you do reach that that 220. Yeah, uh, and then. Um, there's plenty of oxygen and other, and sh- the sugars are concentrated, and so you're you're truly getting caramelization at that point, right? Just not when you have a full kettle, then then you get some of those flavors, but uh, is by melanoidin formation, melanoidin. Instead. Okay, right? Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. But it, the hydrostatic pressure, uh, you know, when you get to you know five foot depth, you know that 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 also increases the boiling point of the liquid mm-hmm. uh, by a couple degrees. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that can change your your melanoidins, and it can improve your isomerization, mm-hmm. um, because the, the the rate of isomerization does increase linearly with temperature. 
Right. But, so, but you're only going to get a, a couple degrees. You're not going to get, you know. Now, all right. So, one of the things that that you develop over, you know, a longer boil is more color, more melanoid formation. I think um, Chris Colby uh, at BYO he did a uh, an experiment uh, where he boiled uh, like a an all Pilsner uh, malt uh, wort. Uh, you know, boiled, you know, some of it for, you know, 60 minutes, some of it for 90 minutes, you know, or whatever, and, and went out to like three hours and compared the colors and really didn't have a whole lot of color development. Now, I, I think that, um, that's absolutely true. So you don't get a whole lot, but um, it also depends on the wort, right? You know, the, the different uh, components you might have in a wort and, and, you know, uh, that may have an effect as well. Is is that true or, or no? I would I would think so. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it is true. The okay. different work compositions will encourage you know different reactions. And so it even depends on the the proteins present, right? Right. The yeah, um, you'll get different melanoidins, different flavors uh, from Munich malt. Uh, such as Jeremy was saying with the the, the imperial amber wit um, versus a pale malt because uh, they're a little different protein, a little different um, uh, what's the word I want to you know the combination of proteins you know mm-hmm. as those form melanoidins with the sugars you're going to have uh, different sugars in a in a darker colored malt. Um, and those will combine with the higher melanoidins and produce different characteristic flavors. So it's, you know, the, the, the characteristic flavors that we get from different malts are in great part a result of the melanoidins those malts form in the boil. Mm-hmm. You know, so it, it's, it varies with the color and it varies with the, the amount of heat you put in, the intensity of the boil, the length of the boil, the gravity of the boil. Um, all those combined to drive the different melanoid formations. Mm-hmm. And uh, so perhaps if you did a protein rest, uh, you'd get a, a different set of melanoid characters. Probably generally the same, but right. uh, maybe slightly, slightly, slightly different or, or maybe more rapid or, or less rapid uh, formation of melanoids. I mean, I'm not sure if that's melanoids are long, long proteins, short proteins or what. Well, I think what it, I think what it drives is that when you are trying to clone a beer, a commercial beer, mm-hmm. uh, you know, kind of look online or call the brewer, or, you know, try to get some feel for how they're conducting the making of that beer. Are they using long boil? Are they using um, a low gravity wort and boiling it for a long time to a high gravity? Are they doing a fairly high gravity wort with a short boil? To get to their OG, you know, if the more that you mimic the the way that boil is conducted, the closer you will get to the to achieving the same flavor, mm-hmm. because those those melanoid paths are very you know technique uh, um, dependent. Hmm. Okay, well let's do this. Let's take a short break. Back after this. Your carboy cap on. This is Bruce Strong. We'll be right back. 
When Blickman Engineering set out to design a great brewing stand, they knew it had to be strong, adaptable, and last for a lifetime. The top-tier brewing stand is now proudly available at BlickmanEngineering.com. It grows with your brewing skills and equipment. Start with 5-gallon coolers on its heavy-gauge stainless steel shelves. Then move all the way up to 30-gallon pots on the high-output burner tiers. Speaking of burners, the custom Blickman Engineering top-tier burners are extremely powerful, efficient, and amazingly quiet. They have safety stops to center your pot, and they'll last a lifetime and won't rust. The top-tier brewing stand allows virtually infinite combinations from traditional gravity systems to two tiers to completely horizontal. Configure your stand the way you want and have the freedom to change it at any time in the future. Your brewing stand should adapt with you, not force you to learn a new process. Visit BlickmanEngineering.com today to configure your top-tier brewing stand and to find a local Blickman retailer. You'll be surprised with all the flexible features and the competitive price. Start brewing with Blickman from the top tier. Williams Brewing is your online resource for prompt delivery of quality home brewing supplies. Since 1979, Williams Brewing has offered the finest equipment and freshest ingredients and the best customer service in the business. Cut hours off your brewing sessions by using one of our 11 varieties of famous Williams malt extract. Our Williams Belgian Pale Extract is mashed with pure Belgian two-row malt and a small percentage of Belgian wheat malt for an authentic Belgian character you just can't get from other extracts. Or check out our unique fermenters, two-and-a-half-gallon kegs, paintball tank-based draft beer equipment, bottling aids, and much more. We even have our own line of precision hydrometers. Go to williamsbrewing.com to browse our vast selection. That's williamsbrewing.com. Orders placed by 3.30 p.m. Pacific time ship the same day. Brewing is easy. The Williams way. Hey, what are you doing, man? Writing a review of WLP 400. What? You're reviewing yeast? Yeah. White Labs has home brewer reviews of all their strains. Are you new to these interwebs? Check it out. That's awesome. White Labs, your source for great yeast, invites all brewers to visit whitelabs.com to read and write your own reviews of all their yeast strains. Get real-world tips and tricks from other brewers who have made the most of their vials and post your own experiences. It's another way White Labs brings you closer to the best yeast on the planet. And send. There you go. You misspelled flocculate, dude. What? Ah, mother... White Labs. It's all in the vial. Organic ingredients. Fresh, clean, good for you, good for the planet. Seven Bridges has the best selection of organic ingredients, including over 27 varieties of organic hops at breworganic.com. Join their mailing list for special deals and regular updates. They've been brewing organic and serving organic brewers for 13 years. They can help you brew great organic beer. And Seven Bridges is the proud host of the fourth annual National Organic Brewing Challenge, the only BJCP-sanctioned nationwide brewing competition just for organic beers. Take the challenge this fall for a chance to win great prizes, including stainless steel brew kettles and organic brewing ingredients. This year, the challenge will be judged in two locations, on the East Coast at Capital City Brewing in Arlington, Virginia, and on the West Coast at Gordon Biersch in San Jose, California. For complete details, visit breworganic.com slash competition. Seven Bridges is cooperatively owned in awesome Santa Cruz, California. Everyone there is dedicated to great beer and people-friendly business practices. They offer environmentally friendly, fair trade, and fair wage brewing products whenever possible. Seven Bridges, breworganic.com. This is www.thebrewingnetwork.com. 
Sit down next to it, grab yourself a paper towel, and watch those yeast have sex. You're listening to the Google Network. Back to the two guys that know how to turn beer into beer. This is Brew Strong. Let's wrap up this Best of Brew Strong show with some fresh questions from the email. If you have a question you want to answer on the show, you can email John and I at brewstrong at thebrewingnetwork.com. Uh, this first uh, email is from Ben. He says, uh, I brewed an American steam beer a couple of months ago. The gravity came in really low. We decided to pitch the yeast anyway and bottled it up. After six weeks, there is still no evidence of carbonation. Is the beer a lost cause or is there any way to revive it? Well, Ben, um, let's kind of break down this this question a little bit. Uh, you know, that's a steam beer. You know, I, I think, uh, you know, you're essentially using a lager yeast. Uh, the gravity came in really low. That shouldn't necessarily be a problem in getting carbonation. And as a matter of fact, it should result in healthier yeast at the end of uh, fermentation. So if you're counting on that yeast, it should still be in pretty good shape. Uh, the only thing I would think is if um, the um, the gravity was really low and there's very little in residual sugars left, if you did not add additional uh, sugars for carbonation, then obviously that that would be the problem. I'm assuming you did add sugar for carbonation, so um, you know that isn't necessarily the reason it didn't uh, carbonate. You decided to pitch yeast anyway and bottled it up. Um, if you pitch fresh yeast, if if you waited a long time uh, between uh, you know your fermentation and bottling, then you should have added fresh yeast. Uh, the other problem, after six weeks, there's still no evidence of carbonation. There's absolutely zero evidence of carbonation. I would start to wonder if the yeast is um, viable in there uh, or if you you know added the sugar or if there's you know total leaks in the caps if you're using something like Grolsch bottles and they're really bad seals. Uh, you could have that problem there. Um, but, uh, you know, if there's some evidence of carbonation, then I'd say that yeast was just weak, and you might give it some more time, move it some more warmer. You know, one of the things when you are bottle-conditioning beer, you want to leave, leave them all um, with some air space between them so the air can circulate so the temperature is even on all the bottles, and you want to keep it pretty warm. You know, you keep it up a uh, fermentation temperature or more. If you're keeping these down in the 50s or 60s, it's going to take a long, long time to carbonate. Uh, you know, before you do anything drastic, I would take a bottle or two and move them to an area that's about uh, 80 plus degrees, 80 to 85 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, leave it there for a good week or, or more and then uh, see if that beer carbonates. If it does, then I think, you know, all your other beers, uh, I would just move them somewhere warmer, maybe not that warm, but somewhere warmer and, and give it some more time and, and you'll probably be there. If that doesn't get it to carbonate, then you can try adding a little more yeast to one of those and try again the 80-degree trick and see if that does it. If not, then um, you know yeast and more sugar and, and give it a try. You can uh, you know add more to, uh, especially if you work with dry yeast, you can just sprinkle a little more in each, uh, you know, work up a, a uh, rehydrate your dry yeast and then add a little bit to each bottle. You could try that, or you know, same thing with sugar. You can. Uh, uh, use a simple sugar, and that should do it. So, uh, there's some way to revive it. Uh, you know, that's that's probably your your best bet. Hope that helps, Ben. 
All right. The next uh, question comes from uh, Quaker. He's living in uh, China, and he says, Ni hao from uh, Chengzhou, China. I'm an expat on assignment and tired of local loggers. I bought some minimal equipment, uh, yada, yada. He has a problem in that uh, he doesn't have uh, fermenters, and he doesn't want to split them into a couple of carboys. He was thinking of uh, trying to uh, ferment in the kettle. Any insights or concerns? Here's what I've considered, considered thus far. Uh, hot matter, he's bought some hot bags, and he is going to uh, use those to, to pull the hops out. All right. Oxygenation, no stone system here, nor can I cap and shake it. So sanitize whisk, it must be after cooling off, I assume. Sanitation, uh, lid will be on while bringing to a boil, and I could put it on again for the last few minutes or so to sanitize with steam. Uh, chilling, no chiller here, so I will use the tub as a water bath. Uh, and even if I opt for a different fermentation vessel, wort will still rest in the kettle for several hours. Uh, the only issue I see is hot and cold breaks. It's just goodness for the yeast. If haze is the only downside, I'm completely okay with it. So that'll be, I'm brewing tonight or tomorrow. I'll probably be committed on the first batch before your next Q&A show, but still interested in your thoughts. All right. Uh, first batch is uh, a porter, uh, purposely selected, so it's most likely to hide the flaws from the first attempt here. ZZ, that's thanks, not hugs and kisses, Quaker. Uh, yeah, Quaker. All right, so I've got some friends that uh, do ferment in their kettle. Um, uh, a good friend uh, down in San Diego, as a matter of fact, uh, Randy, he um, has fermented, you know, second-round award-winning light lager in his brew kettle. So it's quite possible to get you know, excellent results from fermenting in the kettle. I, I think, uh, you know, it's, it's not necessarily as big an issue as, uh, you might think. seems a little, um, unusual to, to most folks, but, uh, really, uh, I, I think you've, you've thought through some of the, the issues there, the hot matter. Okay. You got that taken care of oxygenation. That's, that's the one that I would, uh, worry about here. If you're a sanitized whisk, you're going to pull in, you know, no matter how careful you are, anytime you lift that lid off after boiling, you know, dust is going to settle in there with uh, wild yeast and bacteria. And it's really, you know, if you ferment the beer and then drink it quickly, it should be fine, but if you want uh, really the, the the best beer, I, I'd avoid you know getting any sort of uh, you know dust settling in there. Which as soon as you lift that lid, you're going to start getting that. Uh, you know, in China, I, I gotta imagine they got air aquarium pumps, and I think uh, you know you can buy a, a small sanitized or a small uh, sterile filter for uh, the pump and just uh, pump air into the the kettle and let that go. I think that that will uh, you know. It'll make a huge difference compared to uh, you know doing doing nothing or you know allowing uh, dust to settle in your in your beer while you're whisking it. So uh, give that a try. Uh, you know you should you should be able to do that. You know no oxygen tank, but you know give that a try with the aquarium pump. Should work well. A lot of people uh, do that very thing. Uh, sanitation. Uh, yeah, if you. Um, you don't have to worry about keeping the lid on while bringing it to a boil. Uh, you just want to. Keep it nice and hot, uh, you know. Uh, keep it clean, and uh, I set mine near the near the burner, and uh, you know, heat it up that way, and that actually just pasteurizes it. And then, like you're saying, put it on for the last minute or so, and that'll sanitize it with some steam. Uh, steam is a very effective sanitizer. It carries a lot of energy in the steam, and when that steam turns to water, and when it touches something, it releases all that heat, and that's uh, why it's such a great uh, way of sanitizing things. 
and uh, chilling. No chiller here. Yeah, I, th- I think you know you're okay with that. It's it's great if you can chill rapidly, um, you know, for sanitary reasons. But if if you're real careful, I, th- I think you'll be okay. Um, you know, definitely if you're gonna take the lid off and whisk it, then you know, slow cooling over you know overnight or something like that is going to be a killer. So uh, I would I would just be careful there. And uh, hot and cold break. Well, you know, yes. I mean, there's, you know, people point to, uh, you know, break material, you know, being useful for yeast in certain conditions, things like that. Uh, yeah, but when you have a, you only need, you know, an invisible amount of it, you know, for, for that effect to, to happen. You know, when you have big piles of it, the drawback um, is, you know, there are negatives to it, but probably... You know, when you're when you're just doing doing a batch, um, you, you're just not going to be able to repitch that yeast. You're going to have so much uh, true mixed in with the yeast that it's really difficult to to reuse the yeast uh, later on. So, uh, you know, that I think would be you know one of the one of the main uh, downsides. But you know, especially if you're sticking with uh, dark beers, you don't have to worry about haze. So, you know, I think it's I think it's a good solution. I think it it has a lot of uh, positives. You know, one being not transferring it to another another vessel and therefore exposing your your wort to contamination there. So, you'll you'll gain something as far as that that goes. So, I think it's a, a good solution, and uh, I wish you the best. Thanks for writing in. Our next question comes from Jess in Maui. Jess says, Aloha. I missed the last brew strong, but I want to get a question in for next time maybe. I was wondering if I could brew a high-gravity wort, say uh, 1.110, using all grain and throwing some DME into the boil. I don't have a mash ton space to get to, enough mash ton space to get to 1.110. Uh, let's see, and then take the five gallons that would normally go into one carboy and split it into two carboys and top each off with water, yielding two five-gallon batches around 1055. Uh, could I just double everything in the recipe, and would the recipe turn out the same? Would be awesome if so. I'd love to get 10 gallons in one brew day. Thanks, Jess. Well, Jess, um, to some extent you can, and to some extent you can't. Um, think of it this way. It's, it's like, uh, when doing a partial boil. So when somebody's, uh, got only a small brew pot and they can only fit half of the, uh, the, the wort in there, the final wort volume in there, and they're trying to brew a 1055 and they end up, uh, you know, doing a concentrated boil and then adding water later on. So all the problems that are associated with partial boil, uh, that's what you're going to have. And it's, essentially the same thing so the problems would be uh you know hop utilization uh you know that is going to drop so you're going to have to really increase the amount of uh of uh, hops to get the same bittering your uh head retention things like that might suffer as well uh you know you're going to precipitate out a lot of uh, proteins and um you know flavor if you um you know, you're boiling something more concentrated. You you can develop more flavor. So the flavor profile of the wort is going to change a little bit. So it, it can be done. One of the things that you won't be able to do, or well, maybe I guess you could do if, uh, depending on your your gravity, if you're talking about throwing uh, DME into the boil already, you can add that boil at the end. That's one of the things that uh, partial boil uh, brewers do is they hold out a lot of their extract whether it's DME or LME, and they add it near the end of the boil. So the earlier part of the boil is done at a lower gravity. It gives, you know, better hop utilization, things like that. And uh, 
So you add that that DME at near the end, uh, essentially just to sanitize it, and you you know you're you're good to go. So you know if you want to read up on uh, partial boils, uh, it's in uh, John's uh, excellent uh, How to Brew uh, that talks about p- partial boils and. Uh, you can get a lot of information off the internet and, and from the forums. Uh, a lot of people have done partial boils, and there's a lot of information out there on that. And, uh, you know, other than that, I see no reason why you couldn't uh, do that and get yourself uh, 10 gallons one brew day. So, thanks for your email and enjoy. All right, and then uh, let's wrap this up with a uh, email from uh, Michael. Michael's in uh, Yokosuka, Japan. And uh, he was asking, uh, what should a home brewer consider when they try to double a recipe? I'm getting ready to brew the Can You Brew It recipe for Clo- Rogue's uh, Dead Guy next weekend, and I'm ready to rock. I just now finished a very fine bottle of double Dead Guy Ale from 2009, and now I'm sitting here rethinking my recipe. I noticed from the bottle that they use Cascade in the double version rather than staying with the Pearl and Centennial that they use in their standard recipe. Now I ask why that change? Cranking the recipe up to the stated original gravity in 19 Plato is very easy in any brewing software, but I'm thinking what else should one consider when modifying a recipe to account for anticipated changes in hop utilization, flavor development, malt hop balance, yeast attenuation, and even their survival in a more hostile environment, etc. Not just with Dead Guy, but in any recipe. Lastly, any specific thoughts on modifications to the... uh, can you brew it recipe to make it a double dead guy great show guys can't we wait to be able to catch y'all in real time when i can eventually return to the states gotta go wait until the statute of limitations <laughs> runs out all right so uh michael that's a great question i think you know really we could do a whole show on this uh that's probably a good idea but uh, i'll try and help you out here uh, you know there's there's multiple ways of brewing a double version of a beer. One would be to uh, just take everything and double it. Uh, some brewers do that. Um, I think uh, Deschutes, when they do their um, their Black Butte Porter uh, double version, the, the 20, 21, 22, they're essentially just doubling that Black Butte recipe. Now, they do make some small changes, I've been told, um, but you know, essentially you're just doubling it, every ingredient. The second way of doing it is to um, just increase your base grains to bring the gravity up to uh, your target and leave the specialty grains the same. And there you're just essentially increasing alcohol. You're increasing body, increasing some other things. But a lot of the specialty malts, um, you know, the, the level remains the same. So two different ways of doing it. The, the danger of doing... Um, you know, when you're just ratcheting up the the gravity, then you just need to adjust your bittering, and you know you're you're pretty much good to go. You adjust your fermentation, you're pretty much good to go. If you're doubling, the danger is sometimes when you're we've got a recipe that's already fairly extreme on uh, some specialty malts, and you double that, it can really become way too heavy and become syrupy, become uh, acrid, become harsh. I mean, there's a lot of things that that can kind of go wrong. There, um, you know, it's kind of cool to double a recipe and see what it turns out like, but it's a lot of times it just isn't the best drinking beer. Um, as far as that goes, you know, Rogue 
uh, dead guy doesn't have a whole lot of specialty mods, so you can actually be okay doubling doubling something like that. One of the things you need to look out for when you are uh, bringing the the recipe up: higher gravity, less hop utilization, and you know you're going to need to adjust for that. Uh, same thing goes for, for the yeast. You, you already know this. Uh, you know, bigger pitching rates are involved when you get to a really high um, gravity work. You may want to uh, bump your your pitching rate up a little bit more and do a second dose of oxygen about 12 hours in, and that's going to ensure that that thing attenuates out uh, completely. You may also need to adjust your your pitching rate to, or your uh, fermentation temperatures a little bit to uh, avoid getting really fusely alcohols. You know, start a little lower, a degree or two lower at the the start, and make sure you ramp up the temperature at the end to get full attenuation on that thing. But uh, you know those are those are some of the tips on uh, uh, you know doubling up a recipe. I think uh, that's that's something worthy of a whole show. So maybe we'll we'll do that one uh, fairly soon. But hopefully that that'll carry you uh, through uh, your brew session. Thanks for writing in, Michael, and uh, hope to see you in the U.S. again soon. All right, so that's a wrap on our uh, best of Brew Strong, and I hope you enjoyed it. There's a lot of good information in there, and. Uh, couple of new nuggets of, of, of goodness, uh, hopefully, that you can uh, chew on a second time. And uh, if you get a chance, make sure you check out all our fine sponsors and show them that uh, you love them as much as we do because uh, they make this show possible. Until then, we're strong. <laughs>